So glad to be back with you. Hey, my son's football team is 9-0. They are the CCIW champions. I'm excited. The Wheaton Thunder. Go Thunder. And uh, they win next week. They'll be the undisputed champion in their league. So they get a ring and everything. And so thank you for, you know, I, I made a promise that I would be there for every one of his games this season, the last season of his senior year. And I've kept my word. And I'm glad I get to be just a good dad. So thank you for that opportunity. But today we come to the highly anticipated third installment of the series, You Asked For It, because you asked for it. We're going to talk today about great sex. Two words you probably thought you'd never heard in church, ever, unless, of course, Steve Arterburn was preaching. But... Uh, we're going to talk about that today because you asked for it. Just because you asked for it doesn't mean you're going to get it. But I was just thinking, though, <laughs> you should have laughed at that. That was funny right there. That was a good one. We're going to talk about this. Uh, I, I mentioned this to several of my friends, and I said, we're going to talk about this in church, and people started coming up to me. I can't believe you're going to talk about sex in church. Yeah, it's going to be okay. I just want you to know right now we're going to keep it PG-13. But it's, you know, some of you guys are already excited. You got your notes and your pen out. You're ready to go. And I've never seen you take notes before ever, but today you're like, go for it. Tell me. You're leaning forward. Everybody's excited. No, not everybody. You know, my daughter wasn't so excited because she, she told me this week, it was so funny, she texted me this little text. She goes, hi, Daddy, how you doing? So I thought I would be funny. So I wrote back real fast, I'm working on my sex message. But the stupid autocorrect changed message to massage. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> uh-oh. Total shame. She sends back like three seconds later, Dad, that's so creepy. <laughs> Felt like a creepy old, no. I don't want to scar anybody today. I'm not going to scar you. In fact, in fact, I am going to keep it really PG-13. Um, you know, if, you're, if you're, you've got kids in the room and they're like 12, 13, 11, listen, do not worry about whatever I'm going to say because uh, you're not going to hear anything from me than what they're already hearing in school already. And if they're younger than that, you know, feel free to take advantage of our amazing children's ministry. They love your kids. They don't have to do this, but they're the best people at Harland. Isn't that true? And they love your kids. They're going to pray for them and help them and teach them. But today in here, we're going to have this discussion. And I just want to set a couple expectations about the morning. Just can I do that? Like, what, what is it going to be like? So number one, number one, I want you to listen for you. <laughs> I don't want you to listen for your husband. Don't listen for your wife. Because I know some of you, you're already thinking, I can't wait to get out in the car and say, so what would you think of the message, you know? And some of you are going to be like, you know, the pastor said, and you need to. No, I don't want to, I don't want to be co-opted into your arguments. Uh, this message is not for having ammo. This message is not to be used as an argument. I just want you to listen for you. And you know, women are going to hear this differently than men. And husbands are going to get hear it differently than wives. And singles will hear it differently. And teens will hear it differently. So just listen for you. Second expectation is, I'm not here to legislate your bedroom. I'm not here to legislate your body. I, I, I can't. It's not my business. And you don't even have to agree with me, okay? So there's some freedom here. This is the guilt-free zone, right? I'm not here to condemn anybody, and I'm not here to tell you what to do, but why are you here? Because You've already heard a thousand opinions this week about what the culture has to say about sexuality. In fact, you couldn't get through the evening news without five or six commercials offering help for your sex life. So today, you're here in this environment because you want to hear what does God have to say? I mean, what does God have to say about sex? It's, and, and the funny thing is, we don't know. Because if you're like me, when you were growing up, you probably didn't talk much about sex at home, right? We didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about have any conversations. And... You didn't hear about it in church. In fact, when I was a kid, all I ever heard in church was, don't, don't, stop it, stop it, no, 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 thou shalt not, no, never, ever, bad. 
Nobody ever said the words great and sex together in church as far as I can ever remember. But today, we're going to talk about what God has to say about it. And the crazy thing is the culture thinks it knows everything about sex. In fact, it can't stop talking about it. The culture is obsessed. It's in all of the songs, all the movies, all the TV, all the advertising, all the billboards, all the bathroom walls. It's everywhere. You cannot get away from it. And the funny thing about people who are obsessed is that they project their obsession onto everybody else. So there are people today who think, well, you know, the church is all obsessed with sexuality. <laughs> no, the culture is obsessed with sexuality. Anytime a person is upset, they just project that. So, you know, a person who's struggling with alcohol, they're an alcoholic, you just say one time to them, you say, are you, are you sure you want to do that? And they're like, you're always bringing up my drinking. So that's what obsessed people do. So today, I know it's going to probably create some ripples for you, but here, 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 where else are you going to learn what God has to say about great sex? And the funny thing is, the Bible starts with two naked people <laughs> in the garden. And I know you spiritualize that, you know, husband and wife and man and God created and all that, but I want you to read it today. I want to just go read it just like how it happened without over-spiritualizing it and just say, here's what God has to say about great sex. So look at with me, Genesis, second chapter, right in the beginning. Follow in your notes or look on the screen or download them if you're watching online. By the way, everybody, just say hello to all of our friends online watching right now. Give them a great hand. We love you guys. Thank you for being a part of our service today. We're glad you're watching. You're, you're supposed to be here too. Okay. The first time we hear about sex, and I know you didn't think of it this way before, but look at it here. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Sounds very spiritual, but just they're just talking about she shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's right there. Uh, God brings two people together. The first time they ever saw each other, they're naked. The guy goes, whoa, man. That's what it says. I just read it. And right there, the two become one flesh, right there in front of God and everything. <laughs> it's not like God was embarrassed. Not like God snuck up on him there in the bushes. He's like, what are you? Oh, my me. You know, and he didn't even say, he didn't say any of that. He's not embarrassed. He's not against it. In fact, he made it. That's the first thing you want to write down. God designed great sex. I know you never thought of it that way before, but God designed it. He created it. He made it. I mean, one day there was none. Once upon a time, no sex. And God says, I got a great idea. Angels be like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you wouldn't understand, but watch this. Wow. He made it. He created great sex. It's not just for procreation. He actually made it for your pleasure and for your enjoyment. He actually made it to be the most connecting, most bonding, most powerful uh, gluing agent between a man and a woman that they would hold them together for life. Something deeply spiritual happens. 
See, see, the whole message of our culture is totally opposite of that. It is just an animalistic, physical activity. It's just something you can't help. Like, you know, think of all of the lies you've heard, and it's just, it's just well, boys will be boys, can't be helped. That's the whole response of sexuality from culture, that you just can't help yourself. You've just got these urges and instincts, and it's just really, well, you just got to do what your feelings tell you. You're just born this way, and you've got to do what your feelings tell you. you just got to go with your instincts. Not true. Actually, what separates you from being an animal is that you can make choices. That, that you don't have to just do what your... See, if I just did everything my feelings tell me, I'd probably be in jail right now. <laughs> so, I don't have, so no, the good news is I don't have to just do what my feelings tell me. I actually can make choices, and, and the older I get, I can make wiser choices. Making choices is wisdom. And God gave me that. It says right there, I'm made in the image of God. I'm not just an animal. But, but culture wants you to believe, well, you can't control this. This is just who you are. This is just what you, you've just got these urges and instincts and your feelings. No. This is not just a physical action. Okay? God designed sex to be very, very spiritual. It's a spiritual thing with a spiritual design, the spiritual intent. Look what it says in, Paul says in Corinthians chapter 6. There is more to sex than just skin on sin. In fact, let me just say this. There's more to, sex to you than your sexuality. I can't believe that some people would just say, well, you're only defined by your sexuality. It's not true. I want to get to know who you are. Your sexuality is part of your life, but it's not all of your life. But obsessed culture wants to make everything about this issue. I'm just telling you that he just said right here, there's more to sex than just skin on sin, or skin on skin. That was a typo right there. That was a slip. I didn't mean to say that. There's more to sex than just skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. Not just one physically, but something spiritual happens. Like, like something really bonding would take place, that actually a piece of you would go with that person, and a piece of that person becomes a part of you. And it was meant to unite a man and a woman together forever, a covenant marriage where one is giving themselves and the other gives themselves. And so the body is just acting out what's really going on inside of the soul. But when it doesn't work that way, when it's just meant to be a physical, there's a spiritual, uh, a ripping that happens. And, you know, I, we all know that reality. There's so much pain and shame and regret related to sexual um, interaction, but nobody talks about that, and Hollywood will never tell you about it. But yet, here's God saying, my standard for sexual activity is that this is supposed to be something that bonds and glues a man and a woman together for the rest of their life, a covenant marriage, and it only really works in that context. Everything outside of that is really complicated and destructive. But Hollywood will never again tell you that. Okay, so, so 91% of all of the sex that's on TV right now, not talking movies or the internet, just on TV, 91% of sex right now is, is sex outside of marriage. Well, so then consequently, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that 92% of college freshmen going in to college this past fall uh, say they are, they're sexually active, they've had sexual intercourse. But Hollywood will not talk about the reality that almost every person in this room knows. See, more partners didn't make your life better, did it? See, nobody wants to talk about the pain or the wounds or the disease or the hurt or the shame or the guilt or the, the ripping inside of the soul, but we all know the reality, and culture's lying, and culture says things that we know aren't true, but we laugh because they're funny, but, but like, like, um, like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> 
yeah, oh, really? Like what happened on the trip just stays on the trip? Uh, what happens that nobody knows about, nobody ever has to find it won't hurt anybody, that lie, that one? Um, what happens that nobody else can see is no big deal, I get to leave it behind? No way. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. What happens in Vegas stays with you your whole life. Everybody knows that. It's true. So, so, so we need to have some different information, a different perspective. And what does God have to say not just about sex and, you know, this whole idea that, that, that God would say something really boring or he would say something really restricting when he invented it? And not only does he say uh, it's good, he talks about in Scripture great sex. And I want to talk about the secrets of that today. I want to take you to a place in the Bible that defines and describes great sex. It is the book of Song of Solomon. You might have never read it before, but it is written by King Solomon. And he wrote most of the Proverbs, so all of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And he also wrote the Song of Solomon, which he called uh, his Song of Songs. He wrote 1,005 songs in his life. And he says, this is my best one. It's the greatest one. And the Song of Solomon is a graphic description of marital intimacy. And it's in the Bible. And in fact, the English translators are so embarrassed by what he writes that he, they don't translate it accurately. They just kind of make it all... Like, they church it for you, okay? But it is not, I mean, you, you can look it up and just read the notes, uh, the, the textual notes yourself. It is a very graphic to make you blush, make you embarrassed description of marital uh, intimacy, and yet God puts it in the Bible so that you will know what great sex is like. So we're going to read some of that today, okay? And it's going to be really fun. Now, i got to tell you, there's some figurative language here that made a lot of sense to the people who lived back then. They'd be like, oh, yeah, we get it. But today, we have to interpret it because you can't just say these things. Like, you, like, like the, the, the groom says to the bride at one point, your belly's like a heap of wheat. And if you try that on your wife today, <laughs> that's going to be bad. But apparently, it was quite a compliment in that day. So, guys, don't just say this stuff literally. We're gonna have to, I'm going to give you some help here and interpret for you just a little. But it's pretty cool what it says. Let's just read some of this. Uh, Song of Solomon, uh, verse 1. He says, Solomon's Song of Songs. Now, now the, the book is like this. The bride speaks, and then the groom speaks, and they go back and forth. And every once in a while, the, the bridesmaids, they just go, this is so wonderful and beautiful. They talk. But really, it's, be, it's back and forth between the, the bride and the groom. So uh, she starts talking first. Verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. And right there, the first verse, he lays the goal that we would be intoxicated by the love of our spouses. But they haven't actually, this isn't about love making yet. This is just about, she's talking about just his love. They haven't had sex yet. This isn't physically consummated. Actually, the wedding is going to come. This is a bride uh, days before uh, the wedding, and she is so excited she can hardly wait, and she's talking about how amazing his love is. She's basically saying, nobody knows how to love like you. In fact, look what it says. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name or your reputation for love is like perfume poured out. So your kids admire you. Uh, your friends admire you. The people who uh, you work with, they all admire you. They, they all say there's nobody who loves like you. And then she says, and all the young women, no, no wonder the young women love you. And what she's saying is, they all want you, but they can't have you because you're all mine. That's what she's saying. So it goes on and on like this for three chapters. Chapters one through three is all of this back and forth describing how attracted they are to one another. And it's leading up to the wedding. And this wedding is incredible. There are 60 groomsmen. 
and they bring her in. I mean, these 60 on this litter, like, uh, like in Gladiator on the fancy bed, lifted up on their shoulders, and she comes in, and it's this big thing, and the bridesmaids are all excited, and uh, they have this great wedding. And the weddings were different than today. In fact, uh, you need to know about their culture that when you did a Jewish wedding in those days, it, you could do the vows, you have the ceremony, but it wasn't complete until it was physically consummated. So there would be this wedding, they'd leave the, 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 the wedding ceremony, and they'd all go to the reception where they would have this private chamber, and everybody's outside partying, like literally at the door, and they're all like, woohoo, yeah, and get her done, get her done, and they're all yelling at the door. Can you imagine, aren't you glad we got rid of that? I mean, how distracting would that be? All these people pounding, yeah, woo, woohoo. And then they come out, and everybody goes, oh, yes, and they're like, yes, and then that's the wedding, and then they party for a week. That's the wedding. But chapter 4, okay, is when they go into the bridal chamber, and they're both in there together, and Solomon writes what he's saying to her and what she's saying to him, and this is, this is the honeymoon night, chapter 4, so this is where it gets really interesting. So uh, verse 1, he says um, to her, this is really funny. Uh, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending down. See, try that one out, guys. Like, your hair is like a flock of goats. What she, okay, so what, she, what he is saying is, like in Gilead, where all those goats just run down the hill, it's like what she, she's describing her letting down her hair. I mean, this is, she's undoing her hair, and it's falling down. He's starting with the top of her head, and he starts to work all the way down her body, describing. So he says, um, your, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. You brushed your teeth. I'm so excited. This is... I guess that didn't happen a lot, but this is no bad breath here. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. So you're not a hockey player. This is great. You have all of your teeth. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of, halves of a pomegranate. Okay, so it just means like pomegranate is all red on the inside. And so she, he's basically describing you're just flushed with excitement. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone, and on it hang a thousand shields. This is so romantic. All of them shields of warriors. What, he, what he's saying there is you're not just hot, you're regal. Like you're noble. You're like royalty. You're a princess. You're elegant. Okay, so if you haven't picked up the point here, this is what's amazing. For like 11 verses, he hasn't even touched her. For 11 verses, he's just describing her beauty. He's just talking about, he's affirming her, telling her how amazingly beautiful she is. And he hasn't even put one hand on her yet. Which I think this brother has something to say to all of us men. Which is really important. Number one, write this down, great sex is unselfish. He doesn't just grab her and say, let's get down to business. There's a great lesson here. Great sex is patient. And great sex is about giving. It's about putting aside your own needs to focus on the needs of your spouse. And he's so attentive. You know, I've observed as a pastor over all these years, my interaction with people and counseling and talking, and I don't know if this is true for all of you, or for some, of, some women, maybe a lot of women, one of the great needs anyway is the need for security. And a great need to be safe, a need for affirmation, and a need for uh, just to be affirmed. And so here he is taking the time because he recognizes this wisdom from God to unselfishly affirm her. And that usually starts 
way before the bedroom. See, don't be trying like five minutes before, hmm, what can I say, you know, <laughs> make a little comment, and then, you know, she's going to be, I know what you're doing, that doesn't work. You're just saying that because you want to get something. You see, you have to be more sophisticated than this, man. You've got to start off earlier in the day and start with these, start with affirming comments and texts and notes. And you know what? Stop with, you know, you might want to pray, God, put a gate in front of my mouth. No criticism, no outbursts of anger, no cutting sarcasm, no, no bombs of negativity. Wow. Amen, Darren. That was so good. I like that part. No. <laughs> Um, I, I think I'm onto something, though, that if you come home from work and you're just a big ball of stress and you're angry and you're complaining and you're criticizing, you're critical, and you don't like dinner and you don't like all this and you're whatever, and then come 9 o'clock, you're like, hey, Fallon's not on for two hours. Hey, the kids are in bed. Hey, let's go. And she, don't expect a good response. <laughs> don't be surprised. It's not working. Why? Because you've not taken any time to consider probably the, the most important need of a wife, which is to be affirmed and to, for conversation and to be talked to. And I know that uh, you don't intend to be harmful, but, but she's going to remember everything that you say. Isn't that true, ladies? You remember everything. You heard every word, and you remember it. And we're like, could you please forget that? I didn't mean it. But you just have these memories to remember every little thing. And so that's why we're praying, God, put a gate in front of my mouth. Help me not to be critical or condemning, but to be encouraging. In fact, you're texting, you're writing notes, you come home with flowers, you, you write a, a nice letter, you say things that are verbal. You're sowing seeds of affirmation that one day are going to produce a great harvest. A great harvest. You know what I'm talking about? There's going to be a harvest if you sow some seed. But if you don't do anything, you're just expecting to harvest something you didn't sow. How's that working for you? You know, and you come start doing that, she's going to be, who are you and what have you done with my husband? <laughs> and here's the thing, uh, romance is all about making it new. Now, you know, you can say, well, that's not really about my style to be all verbal and such. I'm not all that expressive. You know, I know that. That's okay. And there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that uh, great sex is all about being attentive to the needs of the other person. And it's all about, sexual intimacy is all about giving to the other person. And so Solomon is just instructing us with wisdom, saying, uh, wives need, uh, their, their, their great need for attentiveness and conversation and security needs to be met somewhere. And so husbands, it's up to you to meet that need. And in the relationship, lay down your needs for just a moment and just give the other person what they need according to their love language. Because great sex is unselfish. And wives, it seems to me, Maybe that's not true for all of the men here, but for a lot of us, it would be this need to be admired and to be desired. You, you want to be admired and, and honored and desired. You have this need for that. So honor is figuring out, well, what do they need and giving it to them. Uh, you, you, you don't make him ask or beg. <laughs> the minute he has to tell you what he needs and you're like, all right, get over here, do your thing. That's just not very affirming and honoring. Did I just hit a chord here? Did you guys just get quiet on me? <laughs> All right, whatever. Listen, a guy doesn't feel very desired when that happens. It actually feels like a rejection, and that goes on. A man has a need for security too. And, and I think about a man is a man will find security somewhere. He'll find it in his work or in his job or in a hobby or, or with some friends or on a screen or in another person. I'm not justifying sinful behavior. I'm just saying that if you refuse to meet the needs of your partner, that 
you can expect that you had a part to play. Now, it's true that men desire sex probably more than women, maybe, maybe some other time. And I've even read studies about this. This is true that men desire, in fact, I read one recently that says that men desire sex specifically on days that start with the letter T. And that would be Tuesday and Thursday and today and tomorrow <laughs> and Saturday and Sunday as well. So, you know, I'm just saying, you just can't go wrong. I'm just trying to keep you laughing, okay? It's a very serious subject. Look at the next verse. This is hilarious. Walking, just keeps working down the body. Uh, verse 5, he says, Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. This is a gentle little deer, you know, walking around, and the guy comes up, Hey, deer, and the deers run away. That means exactly what you think it means, right? You'll get that later. Okay. <laughs> They'll run away. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee. He's saying, this goes on all night long. Lionel Richie did not invent that. That's right here in the Bible. <laughs> I can't even say this one. This just embarrasses me, but I'm going to say it anyway. I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. There's two of them. It means just what you think it means. He named them, incense and myrrh. It's just right there. It's hilarious. It's very playful. Uh, number two, great sex is absolutely loving. It's loving. Am I blushing, sweetheart? Probably just a little. I'm so retiring about this. Great sex is absolutely loving. Here's a man who understands that it's about being tender and loving and romantic. It's verbal. You buy into what culture says this is just some physical, sexual, um, this, this self-stimulating release that needs to happen. It's just about getting what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Um, this is why the pornography is so huge. Because there's no work involved. It's just about getting what you need, when you want it, how you want it, avoiding all the hassle. I'm not hurting anybody about what I do in private. Oh, are you so sure about that? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a few things I know. I mean, one of the reasons why there are so many commercials and why there is so much business capitalizing on sexual dysfunction, okay, is because there is a direct connection between the increased use of pornography and the lowering of sexual performance. Fact. Steve uh, Arterburn said in his research, they are, they are clear now that 55% of Christian men are using pornography. And that there's an explosion, an epidemic of women using fantasy and erotic reading material. Now, have you noticed, okay, that there's this great increase in this and a decrease in sexual performance and desire? So, the increased use of pornography decreases your ability to be aroused by your spouse. Duh. Increased uh, self-stimulation decreases sexual interest in your spouse. So just think of this as poisoning your own well. And over time, the relationship is dying. Increased pornography changes the way your brain works, what your brain secretes dopamine for. So it, what used to work doesn't work before, so now you need something stronger to get that hit and to, for there to be an arousal. And so it's destroying your ability to relate to your wife. And the third thing is, is that uh, pornography destroys a wife's self-esteem, and she hates it. And she feels less attractive, and she feels less connected, and she feels uh, undermined by a standard that she feels that she... So it's, it's slowly with moving away her desire for connection. 
and I don't feel very attractive, and I don't feel like I want to be part of this, and very slowly, it's just the beginning of the end. And culture will tell you there's nothing wrong with this, and it's no big deal, and I'm telling you, it's destroying your capacity for sexual performance and intimacy, and it's destroying marriages. And pretty soon, it's the beginning of the end, and there is nothing great about it. In fact, back in the day, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 20, you should read all of Proverbs 5, because it speaks to this, and I don't have time for it, but just one verse. Solomon would write this, why would you trade enduring intimacies for cheap thrills? Because God would say there's great sex, I mean, beyond what culture knows. When sex is unselfish and sex is loving in the context between a man and a woman who've committed to each other for life, there is a level that you don't know about, but it's being undermined, he says, enduring intimacies traded for cheap thrills. This is what Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians 13, which you might have had at your wedding, and you've heard these words before, but here in the context of this discussion, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it doesn't seek what it doesn't have. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. So love doesn't demand or manipulate or self-gratify. And love doesn't use sex as a weapon and withhold it. And sex in marriage is not about great sex. It's not about even give and take. It's about give and receive. And so it's all about love. There is no such thing as great sex without enduring love. And this is where Solomon begins to let us into it. Look at this, what he says in verse 7. He says, he reveals his heart. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You have stolen my heart, my bride. You've stolen my heart. Just one glance of your eyes, one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. My bride, milk and honey are under your tongue. I mean, such vivid pictures, open mouth kiss. I mean, it is, it is such an incredible description of love. And where this is coming from, Solomon is saying this, number three, great sex is absolutely pure. It's absolutely pure. In fact, he's saying here in all of that, I have eyes only for one woman. Great sex is absolutely pure. In fact, write this down somewhere, purity equals passion. That's the secret of great sex. Purity equals passion. He says there is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful. I mean, you're all beautiful. There's no one else like you. I mean, you set the standard of beauty. There's no one like you. And you'd think this must have been some woman. And the truth is, she wasn't. In fact, in the first chapter of Song of Solomon, she talks about how, how uh, embarrassed she is about her looks. And she lists her flaws. And she's very, very insecure. And she's not the most beautiful of all of the women. But here comes Solomon in this moment. He's saying, you are altogether beautiful. There is no one more beautiful than you. There is no flaw in you. Really? All beautiful? How could he say that? Well, here's how. He made a choice that she was going to be the standard. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? All of us have a standard. Every lady in this room, you have a standard about what you think a man should be. And all the men in this room, you, you, you say this is what beauty ought to be. The question is, what do you say is the standard? 
You see, the God of this world, Satan, wants, who is the driver of culture, wants to destroy your capacity to be madly intoxicated in love with the wife of your youth, with your spouse, with your husband. It's no surprise, it shouldn't be a surprise, that every year when Valentine's Day rolls around and we ought to be celebrating the love that we have with our husband and with our wife, that that's exactly the week that Sports Illustrated releases the swimsuit edition. Is that a coincidence? Is that, is that just, or is, it's, it's an obvious attack on what the standard is. And husbands, when you, when you say, my wife could never be like that, see, and the wife feels that way, there's a great destruction that happens. But here is a man who says she is altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in her. And guys, I wish I didn't have to say this. Uh, I know you're smart. I wouldn't use the word dumb or stupid. Wouldn't even say those words, <laughs> okay? But you should never, ever make a negative comment about her body <laughs> because she's going to remember forever Amen, ladies? You with me here on this? She remembers everything you've ever said about that. So don't ever, I mean ever, could I just say ever, say anything, compare her body to anybody else, and you say, well, how am I supposed to do that? Listen, I'll tell you how. It's easy when you make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look on any other woman on a screen or anywhere else except for her. Purity is what equals passion. Now, I've made a choice, and don't be offended by this. But Larie is the standard for beauty in my eyes. There is no one like her. She is so beautiful. She is altogether beautiful. She knows all of my secrets. She knows every part of my heart. She is the most godly, strongest, the most giving, the most beautiful, the most kind, the most precious, most incredible woman. I am intoxicated by her love because purity produces passion. And I know I'm not all that to look at, and I got a few pounds to lose, but she thinks I'm hot. <laughs> so you can't have this, right? Because she thinks I'm the greatest. I'm her standard. Because purity produces passion. I'm telling you, there is, you want great sex. <laughs> you want the greatest sex. Purity produces passion. And you get to make that choice. And you say, well, Darren, that's great for you. You've got that. I can, my, my spouse won't respond like that, and grumble, 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 I'm sorry, what did I just say? <laughs> you know what I said? You know that little feeling of, of, uh, of deprivation or something. Listen, listen, let me just, could I just talk about this for a minute? Let me give you a picture. I'll help you understand this. Because people say all the time, I don't have the passion anymore. We've lost the love. We have a fire pit out back in our in our backyard. We have this, and we love it. We go out there all the time, and it, one of the things we greatly enjoy is the crackling of the wood and the, the warmth of the heat and the smell of the smoke and just the whole experience. We love it, and some of you have this in your home, or you've got a great big fireplace, and you love it, and one of the things you know about that is that there is an investment of work to keep that thing going. You've got to go get wood, and then you've got to get the fire lit, and it takes some time. It doesn't just start at once. I mean, you can throw gas on it, but, you know, if you want a great fire, it takes a little bit of time to do it right, and then after a while, the embers go down, but you got to get down on your hands and knees and blow on that thing and get some air because a fresh supply of air is needed from time to time, and you need to haul out all of the ashes because it just gets, you know, gummed up, and you need to clear it out, and you got to go get more wood. There is an investment of work that's involved in an incredible fire 
And so some people say, well, we just lost the love. No, you didn't. You just got lazy. You just quit investing. You quit investing in, in the thing that was most important. You quit doing any work. And see, that's what we got to do. We've got to admit, like, hey, I don't know everything about my wife's needs. And, and it's just some work for me to learn. So, so get some help. Learn what you don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that I would talk to you about today that I can't in this environment. It wouldn't be appropriate. But, but, we, but there is information to learn. That's why in two weeks, we've just decided, Steve and I were going to do a Saturday morning seminar, a, a mini marriage summit for just for adults. We're going to talk about this area. We're going to be very open about it. And in fact, Steve has written a book that everybody needs to get. It's called Every Man's Battle. This is a best-selling New York Times book, probably one of his best books that he wrote. This is help that's available. Man's Guide to Winning the War on Sexual Temptation, One Victory at a Time. Um, just an incredible book to break free to sexual purity. He also wrote The Seven-Minute Marriage Solution. Both of these books are available at the back. And in two weeks, we're going to have this summit together. And we're just going to, just investing two hours to learn what you don't know. Or maybe this is an area of great disappointment or frustration, or you just stop talking. And how do we get the conversation started? You have something to come to. But do some work. That's my point. Invest. Ladies, your guys, it's very visual. So get rid of that old nightgown that's so thick you couldn't see a solar flare through it. <laughs> you say, oh, it's comfortable. Yeah, but it looks like a spacesuit. Okay, so get rid of it. Do something, you know, paint up the barn, whatever, good Lord, do something, you know. <laughs> Work. Put the romance back in. I just want to make you laugh. But there's so much truth in this. Great sex is unselfish, and great sex is loving, and great sex is absolutely pure. See, if you'll make this commitment... I mean, there's no comparison. I mean, there's just no comparison to what the world wants to offer you and what God designed. There is no comparison. Look at the last verse. Look what he values more than anything else. He says, I'm so excited. He says, you waited for me. You waited for me. The greatest sex is not what the world has to offer as a cheap, casual, physical encounter, but you waited for me. Look what he says, verse 12. You are a garden locked up. My bride, you are a spring enclosed. You are a sealed fountain. He's saying, nobody else touched you. You saved yourself for me. And, you know, teenager or single or married or divorced or married again, and, and, and you're just, you know, you, you already knew you went too far. And you've made the mistakes already. Here's what I want to tell you today. Jesus Christ can cleanse you, and he can make you brand new. He can make you new. Old things passed away. Thank God Jesus takes care of yesterday. He can not only forgive you of your past, but he can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I'm going to talk to you about how you can do that in just a moment. But you can have a fresh start, and you can be pure again. I'll tell you how to do that. He goes on to say, uh, your plants are an orchard, orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And on and on we could just go, but he's talking about how much value he has for this pure bride that has kept herself for him. And I implore you, don't let culture be the standard. If you're involved with pornography, make today the day that you say no more. If you're involved in a relationship that's, a sexual relationship that's totally outside the confines of what God had in mind, say today's the day it's got to stop. I'm begging you, teenagers, save yourself for your future spouse. Give them, give them the gift of your purity. 
and be sexually pure. And, it, and, it, and you know, I, I knew when I was preaching this to, to, to married people that there'd be single people here today and you'd be so frustrated. Like, you'd be listening to this going, I feel so deprived. <laughs> I feel so like, you know, you're saying to me, like, like, I can't have sex my whole life and you're just, you know, and I, I didn't come here to judge anybody. First of all, I don't, I, I'm, not, I can't, I'm not judging you, your body, your bedroom, none of that. Okay. But let me just talk to you a little bit about the difference between deprivation. I mean, deprivation is, is that I'm starving and I'm dying and I need whatever, I'm trying to meet a need for survival. That's deprivation. And then there's a decision. There's a, there's, there's a decision you can make in life. It's called fasting. And fasting is when, you know, I have this need, but I've chosen for a season of time to not meet that need so that God can meet the need for me. I'm going to trust him. And there's a difference between deprivation and fasting. And see, the difference between de deprivation is about complaining and fasting is about, I'm not going to complain. I made a choice uh, for a season of time to deprive myself on purpose so that God could do something in me. So maybe it's too big of a leap and you're saying, ah, you're telling me I can't have sex the rest of my life. No, I'm not saying that. I'm actually saying, why don't you for one year put God to the test? Make a choice for, for a year to be sexually pure. Here's what I know. When you're involved repeatedly, ongoing, you're involved in sexual uh, relationships that, that are outside of God's design, here's what happened. You start living in a kind of fog. And you know what I'm talking about? That, that whole life, life should be a lot clearer, but I don't, I don't really know what to do. And you know you should be making better choices, but you keep making the same bad choices over and over again, and people get stuck there. See, what I want for you is that you would have a moment of clarity, and there is a clarity that comes from purity that only purity can give. And so I'm saying, why don't you, for a period of your life, say, for one year, I'm gonna reset my purity. You wanna be a virgin again? Reset your purity, just for a year. Here's what I know, if you'll do that, a clarity will come and you will see yourself differently. There'll be a value you have for yourself that's totally different than where you are today. You will see other people, you'll see men and women, you'll see them totally differently because clarity will come in the way you see other people. And the third thing I know is you'll see God differently. Because there's a great verse in the Bible that says, blessed, Jesus said it, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And I don't know everything that verse means, but I do know that it means there is a clarity that comes from purity. And I just want to challenge you that, that you say, man, I haven't kept my own standard, let alone God's. Why don't you for a year just say, and maybe even if you're in marriage, why don't you as a man say, I'm going to commit the next year to sexual purity and see what happens. Quit complaining about how deprived you are and just say, I'm choosing to not complain because I'm going to pursue God. I want to tell you that you will be so different a year from now. You want great sex. You want the passion back in your romance. Purity produces passion. And purity produces clarity. And the lie of this world, the lie of this culture says the best you can get is what you can do for yourself. You are absolutely missing it. The fog has settled in. And you want to be clear. You want to have a sense of God opening up your eyes. You want to look back a year from now and say, I don't even recognize the person I used to be. This is the hope of the gospel. In fact, this is what, what this, this, how this chapter ends. It's so worth it when you, when you decide to be pure. Solomon's bride says to him on his wedding night, this is what was in store. Awake, north wind. That's a strong wind. Come, south wind. That's a gentle wind. Blow on my garden, which is exactly what you think it means. 
that its fragments may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. God, uh, she invites him, uh, she fully invites him, come. And he, she gives herself fully to him, and there's this total abandonment to each other, and it's incredibly great when it's all done God's way. So how do you close a message like this? <laughs> I didn't know. I knew I'd get to this point and go, okay, what am I going to say to people? So here's a verse for you. There's a great verse in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22. You guys know this one? So be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, okay? <laughs> Isn't that a great verse for this message? Come on. Now, I know I tried, to, I tried to make you laugh, and I tried to keep it light and encourage you, but I know this is an area of great disappointment and of great frustration and a great pain in your life, and I just want to encourage you. We're here for you. We're here to help you. I want to inspire you to God's way. And we've got these books available. We've got this marriage summit coming up, and I mean, today is the day to make a commitment to some purity, and I just have some good news for you. This is the no guilt zone. I'm glad you came. You're here today by the hand of God because you needed to hear this message in the context of no one's judging you. We get it. We understand that we are, we are part of the system of our culture that's telling us a message every single day of our lives, what normal is. And God says, I got new normal. And it's going to take some time to get there, but we're here to help you. Let no one feel judgment today because Jesus makes all things new. He takes everything that you've ever done and he forgives it. And he not only forgives it, but he cleanses it. He not only cleanses you, but he will restore you, and he will redeem the mistakes you've made. So somewhere down the road, with the clarity of purity, you'll look back and say, I, I don't even recognize myself anymore. He takes people who weren't virgins, and he makes them virgins. And he takes people who were impure, and he makes them pure. And he takes people who were unrighteous, and he makes them righteous. And there is a future for you of righteousness and holiness. You, holy people aren't holy because they made themselves holy. Jesus makes people holy. And if you'll just start following him and trusting him and maybe move out of the deprivation camp into, Lord, I'm making some choices that you're going to meet my needs, you will not recognize yourself a few years from now. This is a great message of hope, and I hope that you receive it today. Do you receive this this morning? Come on, give God a, give God a, tress, a test. Try him. You know, I want you to hear me. I hold you in the highest regard, every one of you. I've been praying for you. You matter to God. You are so important to him. And I don't want to see one of you miss what God has for your life. There is a great hope and a future for you, every one of you. There is, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. You can start today going forward. And that's what I want to lead you in a prayer for. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And if, if you just would just for a moment, just stay still and just let God talk to you. And you would say, Darren, I feel... Like I came in here with my standards so low. I haven't kept God's standard, let alone mine. Why don't you just say, I know. God knows. So you admit it. And just tell him right now, God, I don't want it to be that way anymore. I'm sorry. I want there to be a change of direction in my life. And you say, yes, God, that's me. He'll hear your prayer. Just say, yes, God, that's me. I want to be holy. Some of you make a commitment today to purity. Say, Lord, I am committing to purity today. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I want you to help me. I want to change direction, and I want to devote myself, my eyes, my heart, all of me to you. Married, unmarried, everybody, just devote yourself. Say, God, help me to be pure today. And then 
you know, husbands, hold on to your wife's hand for a minute. Wives, hold on to your husband's hand. Let me pray a prayer of blessing over you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would break the lie of Satan, break every stronghold in Jesus' name that the enemy has created in this marriage. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you'd prosper them. May they not hold on to unforgiveness or bitterness from the past. May this be a beginning of a new day. I pray that you'd raise trust. I pray you'd cultivate love and peace and joy. I pray for forgiveness. I pray for generosity. I pray that they won't be just takers, but they will be givers, that they will be learners. And God, bless them. Bless them with our, every blessing, like you've blessed me, Lord. Just, just pour it out on the people that, that are here today. I ask you for that in Jesus' name. And for every single person and every divorced person and every single again and, and, and every person that just finds themselves in that moment uh, of life when they're feeling alone, I pray for them today, Lord. I pray that there would be a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let clarity come into their hearts. Help them to make good decisions. Give them the strength to live by your standards, not by the culture standards or even their own. Help them to be strong and to be new today and to walk forward with a great sense of conviction that you're leading them to better things. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen.